This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Childhood as a whole is rapidly changing and adapting to a world in which kids spend their formative years interacting with screens. But despite the public outcry for less tech time, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like cultural fixtures of the past, including sandboxes, finger painting, and family dinners, technology provides kids with a means of developing empathy, fostering community, and cultivating a sense of civic responsibility. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Jordan Shapiro, who's a world-renowned thought leader on global policy and education, and he's got a sharp focus on child development, family life, and digital technology. He's also the father of two boys who, like most 21st century children, are coming of age with a digital fluency that can seem unnavigable to most parents. The narrative about this generational divide has largely been characterized by technophobia, But instead of needlessly hand-wringing, or worse, perpetuating the belief that technology is a corruptive influence, Shapiro is going to use his expertise and tell us how parents can and should embrace the realities of modern childhood. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about raising kids in a connected world when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jordan Shapiro, who's the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It seems like almost... Everybody in every era going back thousands of years could write a book called The New Childhood. I'm not saying that there's not anything unique about this, but I'm just saying that there's in every generation, there's always people who are saying, ah, you know, kids these days and kids are different and childhood is different. And how do you think this childhood or the childhood that we as parents are seeing is is different than than the one that we experienced when we were growing up? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. That 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 that's that anyone could could say that. I think I think if there's one difference, I think it's that we don't realize that. I think it's sort of interesting. We we sort of believe that we're at such a unique moment as uh, as as parents, for example. Um, where where I, I'm not convinced it's that that unique. I sort of imagine no parents have uh, have uh, have ever have ever known what's coming, have ever known how to imagine the world their kids are moving into, uh, and it always has sort of unique challenges. Uh, that being said, I think there's sort of a common thread, which is, which is that 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 grown-ups always need to figure out how to take what what's uh, what's sort of old, what's essential, what's what's what humans have known since the beginning of time and figure out how to how to reimagine that or restate it or reframe it so that it remains relevant even as the technologies and the economic models and the cultural models shift around it. Yeah, cuz I was thinking as you're saying that 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 probably a lot of the parental responses to parenting or to, to children and and the world the children are growing up in has probably been similar at least the words you'd say Oh, I wish that that this hadn't happened, or we we have to stop this. We have to go back to the old ways, and and you talk about that in in a connected world, and so I think that's probably the the most prevalent thing is people are talking about. Boy, when I before they had touch screens and kids these days with text neck, and you look at a restaurant and everybody's looking at their their phones, and but you probably could have said the same thing. You know, before kids were carrying around those stone tablets. You know, or whatever. It is. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I mean, I mean, one of the one of the things I discovered while doing research for the new childhood was, you know, you 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 find that that there were there were people worried that that books were going to make everyone isolated, right? Because before that, you, most storytelling happened in around campfires, in churches, in 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 theaters, in communal spaces, and then suddenly people, when they could have their own book, right? Because because before that, books happened in monasteries. No individuals had books. Right, right. And suddenly yeah, they had it was the that no no kids were going to talk to each other anymore. Uh, uh, they did not immediately go, "Wow, reading is fantastic." They went, "Well, reading is not as good as hearing it from the grown-ups." Uh, and another place where I heard they found the exact same concern was was parents, uh, well, actually physicians who warned that you shouldn't let kids sit near the windows on trains because uh, because the images move by so fast that uh, that their their brains can't handle can't handle the speed, which of course we know is not true now, but we hear. <laughs> a lot of the same concerns, right? This worry about we don't know how the human brain's going to adapt. Humans are really good at adapting, and the most important thing we need to do as grown-ups is to make sure we, we maintain the things we care about. So I think about things like sharing and kindness and ethics and compassion and, and thinking about what those look like, you know, when, when the instruments of communication have changed. Yeah. Uh, how do we still yeah. teach our kids to, to, to be nice to each other? How do we still teach them the, the manners that we care about, even though the, even though those manners may not, may not uh, manifest in the same way because the technologies shifted the way we with the way we talk to each other. You know, that thing about that you were just talking about with, with the speed of images, I just was, remember, was thinking back to when I first showed some James Bond movies, the old Sean Connery movies, to my kids. And I remember them from when I was a kid watching them and thinking, these are so exciting. These are the most unbelievable things. <laughs> and then you watch one of those movies with them, and it's like it's like watching something on slow motion. And you think, how did I ever think that this was exciting? I mean, not that it's. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's exciting in a different way, but it's it's slow comparatively. Yeah, yeah. We are. We, we've gotten used to very, very, very quick, quick, 
quick images, uh, and, and I don't think anyone got brain damage along the way. I mean, they did, but not from the images. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, what do you what do you talk about when you're when you're talking about the new the new playtime? How is how is playtime different now than it was before? I mean, obviously there's technology, but there's also there's also rubber surfaces and playgrounds, so nobody gets hurt and. All, all sorts of things like that. How, so how, how are our kids growing up in a different play world? Yeah, one of the reasons that I talk about the new playtime is I think we often forget. Like, like we have tons of research. There's so much research in education and child development and psychology. We know the benefits of play. We know that it's through play that you develop um, executive function, self-regulation skills, so many of the, the, the really important social-emotional skills, even things like curiosity and problem-solving. These things are, are really, really, they, they start to develop as kids play. But one of the things we forget is that play is not neutral, right? Right? Play is not. There's no like essential version of play that all humans have ever have, have have ever done. Right? Playgrounds, as we imagine them, sliding boards, sandboxes. These are these are a, a, a product of the early 20th century, and that kind of play was great because it taught a way of imagining the self, a way of thinking about who you are as an individual. Right? The, the kind a, a lot of the things we care about: an entrepreneurial spirit, creativity, self-assurance, self-reliance. Uh, but it, but it also taught you how to do it in specific ways. And if we're going to be moving into a connected world, we're going to want kids to think about how to practice all of those skills in ways that are mediated through these digital tools. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't also play in sandboxes. Cause, but in addition to learning how to dig with a shovel, you're going to le- need to learn how to dig with a digital shovel. You're going to need to learn how to talk to each other with a digital shovel. You know, I watch my own children, and they're playing Fortnite, and they're, they've got their, their, their mouthpiece, their, their headphones, and their headset on, and they're talking back and forth. And I think, wow, it's almost like they're practicing for the teleconferencing that they're going to do when, when, when they mm-hmm. grow up, only they're doing it in a way where they're having fun. They're doing it in a way where they're learning how to, how, to, how to manage conflict, how to resolve conflict with each other. And, and I think that's really powerful and exciting. Uh, unfortunately, I think one of the problems is that parents are so worried about it that we tend to either leave them alone in their room to do it by themselves uh, or we limit their ability to do it. When what I'd really like to see is parents getting involved, sitting next to kids going, hey, these are the kinds of ways you should talk while you're talking to people online. You know, correcting those bad behaviors, intervening. That's what I do on a playground. That's what all parents do on a playground. If, you're, if your kid uh, smacks another kid, you go, no hitting, use your words. We need to be doing that in a digital space or else you get the kind of, uh, the kind of really problematic in, uh, interactions that we see on social media among adults right now. So how would you teach your kids to behave on social media? Well, well I, I'm a big advocate of getting kids onto social media with their parents. Um, I'm a big advocate for, for, starting that, uh, for starting that younger than most people are, mostly because uh, most people start their kids on, on social media when they get to be 13, 14, which is right around the time when their hormones are raging and they're prone to risky behaviors and they can be aggressive and they have all these sort of developmentally appropriate kinds of teenage behaviors. I, I would much rather see us start to work with them on social media when they're younger, when my when my children when my children are older now, they're they're 11 and, and 14. But when they were when they were six and seven, anything Daddy said, they wanted to do. I, I think that's a great time to start saying, "Hey, here are 
the kinds of behaviors that I value, and these are the kinds of behaviors you should value. Well, I'm not at all surprised that if you put a bunch of 14-year-olds uh, on, on Instagram for the first time that they make a lot of duck lip selfies and do a lot of uh, uh, superficial things. That's what I did when I was 14 also. What I wish is that we had already, uh, that, that, that they already had a real foundation uh, of strong ethics and values before they did that so that the, so that the superficial behaviors were a little bit more rare. But it seems like there's also another little bit of a problem here, which is that if you get them started too soon, and I'm not sure when that is exactly, but sooner than you're talking about, they may not quite understand the, the importance of privacy and the, the fact that something goes up on the Internet and it stays there forever. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. But those are all things that that we need to be talking about them with them much younger. Well, no, uh, many parents aren't talking about that at all. Not at all. Parents yeah. don't understand yeah. those issues. Uh, uh, but 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 it's really important that we do make sure our kids understand that. And and, I, and by the way, I'm not just worried about the, their their privacy and that things last forever because of my worry about you know, the future, you know, you hear a lot about, hey, college admissions, look at social media, so be careful what your kids post. I'm also worried because I think kids need need an opportunity to reinvent themselves. Talking with Jordan Shapiro, the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jordan. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa... An eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Else encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broadfield, just joining us, talking with Jordan Shapiro, the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. And want to move on to the way that you talk. You've got the book divided up into self, home, and school, and society yeah. as the, the sections of the book. And so we've talked a lot about the self. Let's, let's talk about what's going on at home, because 
the the structure of families is changing. I mean, certainly everybody knows about the 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 structure with having two parent or two same sex parents. Or there's even talk, and at least it's happening in other countries more than it is here, with having three biological parents uh, because of uh, gene splicing things and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, how how yeah. how is how is the family new, and how does that affect childhood? Well, well, the first thing I would say is sort of recognizing that so many of the things that we think of as the as the essential structure of childhood are really products of the uh, uh, of the industrial age. Uh, it, this sort of primary separation between home and work, the idea that you have a home and you have go to work, right? This doesn't happen until the industrial age. This doesn't happen until there's factories and until there's office buildings. Until then, most people work and live in the same place, right? If you live in an agrarian culture, you uh, uh, you 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 wake up and you go outside and start doing and start doing the farm work, right? Um, you, you don't get on a train and commute <laughs> to 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 the to the office place. And so that idea of there sort of being uh, two separate realms is is a, is an industrial age creation. And what happens at the same time is we also start to believe in this nuclear family because now the fam the home is where the family uh, this biological nuclear family sits together. Uh, at the end of the workday or the end of the school day, where before it might have been everyone who worked on the farm ate a meal, ate a meal together. Now I'm not saying one's better or one's worse. I'm just saying that as we move into a connected world, we're starting to see that change. Right? So many people telecommute, for example. So many people work from home. I think one of the reasons people are so scared of digital technology right now is because it's breaking that boundary. Right? Uh, when you're sitting with a phone, it used to be that you know your your kids didn't have to face anything that was scary about the outside world as long as they were inside the picket fence of, of your of your home. You can't protect them from that anymore because a smartphone, which they keep under their bed or under their pillow, right, could, could, has shopping, has has dating, has learning, has <laughs> yeah, politics, everything. Has, has everything that's no longer out out there. It's 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 in it's in here, and so we need to prepare for what do we want those changes to look like if we're no longer going to have that 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 secluded family. How do we make sure we maintain the family values, which I think we all care really deeply yeah. about, but understand that they're not going to look the same in a, in, a, in a different economic and technological era. Well, how do you do that? What give us a, a little bit of guidance about how you begin to even think about it. I mean, obviously you need to think about what your values are, but beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I often think about it is that so much about what the the real family values are about tethering us to something uh, that I I talk about tethering us to the long line of history, right? Just the fact that we often have heirlooms in our home, right? Things that came from our great grandmothers, or we have pictures of our extended families, or we, we mark the, we mark the sort of uh, different milestones of our lives with pictures of a wedding and pictures of a graduation. All of that's about telling a family story and having an identity that becomes that becomes meaningful uh, uh, both, both you know in, in, in a whole in a whole bunch of ways. So I think it's really important that parents are still building think about building those identities, right? We, we often get caught up in the things we used to do to build those identities instead of the the, the what the ultimate goal was was to build that that family, that sense of that sense of connectedness, that sense of family, right? You may need to do that with social media. You may need to do it through texting. In my family, for example, I have, uh, my, my, my two kids and I, we have 
uh, we have a group a group text. I also have individual texts with both of them, but we're often you know sharing this sort of family dialogue at the same time. The same way my brothers and I, when we were kids, that family dialogue usually happened at the end of the day. You know, once we got home, but it happens all day long with my kids now. And more parents should do that for one thing because it gives you an opportunity to model good text behavior, right? It gives you a chance to show them how you talk to people uh, in, in, a dig- in a digital space. If you think about, you learn so much about how to behave with people just from watching the way your parents behaved with each other or the way aunts and uncles behaved with each other, the way the par- your parents interacted with aunts and uncles. And so we want to be modeling, modeling those things. That's part of the real uh, goal of, the, of family life. Is there something that, as you're thinking about all of these changes that are going on, this, this that we've talked about so far with the self and in the home, things that you, in a way, wish weren't happening quite so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot that I wish weren't happening so quickly. You know, I think a lot of people hear about uh, hear about my book and they or, or they hear me talk about these things and they think I'm super pro uh, digital or pro video games or pro social media. And I'm like, hey, Ed, get everyone on board. This is the greatest thing ever. I certainly don't feel that way. I'm very, very worried, and, I, and I'm very worried that we're that we've sort of jumped in uh, with two feet and uh, and and didn't stop to think about how to make sure this happen this change happens in an ethical way or in, in, or in a compassionate way or or in a kind way uh, and I think we see this every day I think if you look at all the all the political and cultural unrest around the world I think part of it is because we've jumped into connection uh, with, without first going wait how do we want to do this how do we want to teach each other to, to, to talk to each other and, and, and so so I'm, I'm very worried about the speed at which it's at which it's happened um, and I'm very worried mostly because I, I I, I think I think parents are and teachers and all grown-ups really aren't quite understanding it, right? There's so there's so much fear of it that there's not enough t- time for people to sort of hold hands and, and and do and do the mentoring that you that you have to do as you move into anything new with 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 young people. Um, I don't think it's by any means too late for us to to make any of those changes, but but I certainly think it it, it, it has happened very fast and without much care. <laughs> Yeah, but it's another one of those things that it's going to keep on moving forward or in, excuse me, whatever direction it's moving. And there's not a whole lot we can do about it, but we can influence perhaps on the on the periphery of it. Well, I think I, I think that I think that I don't even think it's necessarily the periphery. I mean, I, I think the sentiment of what you're saying, I agree with a hundred percent. But I, I I wouldn't even think that we're on the periphery, right? Uh, tool, tools don't use us; we we use them. And I think there's so many things I love about this technology. I love about the connected world. Hey, I don't think you and I would be talking if it weren't for all of these connected technologies, <laughs> right? But absolutely, but, uh, we often forget that that they're supposed to be used the way we want them to be used, and we want to we want to leverage them for good and to create the kind of society we want and not feel like they're deciding what our world is going to look like. How important do you think an understanding of history is for kids these days to understand where they came from? And I just for some reason, I I think probably because there's a picture of my older daughter sitting on my desk here who is a photographer, and actually both my older daughters are photographers, and both of them, when they've taken classes, even though they're raised in a digital world, are starting off with darkroom and developing photos, which is almost completely unnecessary these days. But it seems that it's important, it's important to understand how they got to the point of being able to do everything digitally by learning 
how do how you develop film. And I'm kind of wondering yeah, whether, I mean, whether I, you think it's important for kids to understand that there was a world before touchscreens. I think this is a sort of essential human problem that probably has happened throughout all of history is we, we have trouble distinguishing between what's sort of fashion, what's a trend, what's a fad, and what's, and what's essential. And you absolutely need to learn what's essential. I'm no photographer, but, you know, just sort of guessing based on what, what you just said, uh, um, I, you know, it's essential that you understand light and you understand the way light works. And, and a dark room might be a much better way to make you understand understand that. But the darkroom is not the skill that matters, as you said. Right? The, the skills have to do with using very different... Very, so you don't have to be good at the darkroom, but you have to understand what the dark, how the darkroom works so you can think about how light and color be, be, behave. I talk about the same thing in the book when I talk about uh, math education, right? I mean, at, at this point, we all carry a computer in our pocket that can do math better and more efficiently than anyone can do it on, on paper. Uh, there's no longer uh, right, th this necessity to be able to calculate on paper. Nevertheless, unless you start by learning how to calculate on paper, you're not even going to be able to leverage those tools in a smart, creative way. So, so I always think in terms of what do you need to know about the past in order to make the tools of the future more powerful, right? Um, um, n not because, hey, it's so important that everybody suffers through the difficulties. Or, you know, shouldn't be important that everyone has to smell darkroom chemicals because that is so terrible. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. But, but it is important that they understand it so they can leverage the new tools. Jordan Shapiro is the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. Jordan, thanks so much. Great book. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I am having difficulty communicating with my 11-year-old son. When I ask him questions, he barely answers with one-syllable grunts and is completely uninterested in spending any more time with me than he absolutely has to. What can I do to build a better relationship with a child who thinks his father isn't cool? The good news is that most parents struggle with exactly this issue as their children lurch forward into their adolescent years. The bad news is that most of the tensions and opportunities to get into trouble, sometimes serious or life-threatening trouble, happen when children distance themselves from parents and instead look to their peers for guidance. Fortunately, there are still plenty of ways to bond with your children that will leave them thinking that you're pretty cool or at least not the least cool dad ever which will open up some important opportunities to talk with and mentor your child. Here are just four examples. Go to their level. Find out what your children love and try to get involved. 
Take them to concerts, movies, fashion shows, karate or video game tournaments, sporting events, and everything else they show an interest in. Take plenty of pics and keep the focus on having fun. The more positively you respond to your child's interest and the less judgmental you are, the more time they'll want to spend with you. Bring them to your level. The goal here is to expose your children to the things you love to do and to give them a chance to experience your world. That might mean listening to classic rock, going to a shooting range or bass fishing, talking about history, going to a museum, attending a lecture, binge-watching something on Netflix, or anything else. Bringing your kids into your world tells them that you think they're good enough, smart enough, and loved enough to be at your side doing grown-up activities. That's a show of respect they'll never forget. Discover something new together. The thrill of exploration and trying new things is a powerful one you can share together. It isn't forced or manufactured, but happens naturally and builds a bond of friendship similar to that your children have with their closest peers. If you've never been to a hockey game together, even if it means traveling and staying the night in a city that has a team. If you've never been roller skating, hit the rink, perhaps literally if it's been a while. Even if you don't enjoy the activity or are terrible at it, Making fun of yourselves and talking about how you'll never, ever do that again can bring you and your child closer together. On the other hand, you might just discover a new interest or hobby that'll end up being a special activity for just the two of you. Go camping in the backyard. Camping out under the stars is one of the most bonding experiences you can enjoy with your children. It's a reason so many programs for at-risk youth happen in the outdoors. While it can be hard to find time to get everything packed to go camping, setting up a tent in your backyard is easy and can happen anytime. I know a family in Texas that decided to camp in the backyard one warm Christmas Eve. They did it again the next year, even though it snowed, and it's been a tradition ever since. In addition to basic camping gear, tent, sleeping bags, bug spray, a star chart, a flashlight, a book of ghost stories, and so on, bring plenty of marshmallows, graham crackers, and chocolate, Campfire conversations are great. Campfire conversations with s'mores are even better. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.